0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
1: Cool. And one of the biggest things we're hearing is, you know, I think we're in a very fortunate position where we have invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of skills within our amazing team to develop a brand that we hope young people trust. And through that, you know, by reaching over, you know, close to 300,000 young people, we've trained a thousand young people to learn how to share their stories through this comprehensive um, speaker training program that we've developed.
0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. If you're a LinkedIn user, I welcome you to connect with me by searching for Mike Davis and also following Humans of Purpose to get fast access to all of our latest updates and episodes. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Stephanie Vasilio. Steph is the head of global impact at Batir. Batir is a for-purpose preventative mental health organization created and driven by young people for young people. Steph joined Batir in Australia in 2014 as a third employee and played a significant role in developing Batir's lived experience storytelling program before supporting the growth of the entire program's team as head of programs. Today, Batir has reached nearly 300,000 young people and has grown to a team of over 60 staff and 180 paid lived experience storytellers. I was pleased to connect with Steph for an abnormally late 9pm Zoom podcast to her morning in Toronto, Canada. If you hear either of us yawning throughout this episode, which we don't, uh, that's probably the reason. We spend much of this episode talking about young people and how to have authentic conversations about mental health and well-being. We also discuss the effect of COVID-19 and lockdown on youth, emerging technologies and mindfulness-based approaches to mental health treatment and recent emerging insights from the field. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Steph as much as I did. Stephanie, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast all the way from Toronto this evening.
1: All the way from Toronto this morning, my morning, your evening. So we're really doing this around the world.
0: So you've got up at 7am for this and I'm up at 9pm, which is at least an hour after my bedtime for this as well, which is special.
1: <laughs> yeah. And this is a little bit before my bedtime, but I appreciate you making the compromise <laughs> to make this work.
0: So just explain. So you're you're. Um, Your bedtime is Australian bedtime because you're working with an Australian team, but from Canada.
1: So I'm trying to strike more of a balance in life. Otherwise, it becomes a bit impossible. But I am doing a few evenings here to match up as much as I can with my Aussie mates, Um, so working some evenings. But I think nowadays when everything is online and everyone is so flexible with their hours, it just makes it so much easier to to really work anywhere. With this, I wouldn't mind even just jumping on a plane and, you know, may as well just head to Hawaii, Hawaii or something and work from a beach there. Why, why stay in Toronto?
0: Oh, totally. And I've <laughs> seen some some people, the smart ones who got out of Australia, went to Bali and um, Bali's got some beautiful spots where they're, you know, they're packing up the co-working spaces and whatnot, and they've got freedom. So who knows? <laughs>
1: Yeah, they've got freedom. They're doing it right.
0: They're doing it right. Um, Let's get into your story. I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey. Um, I think your accent's probably thrown a few people. They're thinking, is she Canadian? Is she Australian? What's going on here? So let's talk a bit about your kind of early history, career, what you did, um, and sort of how you made your way to Batir. Yeah, so the
1: the accent does... uh, I think it's more hearing a Canadian say certain Australian words that get people, but I'm trying to counteract that a little bit now that I'm back. But yeah, essentially I, um, I studied here in Canada, um, in, in our capital, Ottawa, a lot of people think the capital is Toronto, but there's a little negative information. I knew that I knew that I'm pretty proud. Yep. Um, So I studied criminology with a concentration in psychology and then um, after university didn't know what to do. So um, did a lot of volunteer work and continued studies in forensic social work and um, did more frontline work, I'd say. So I um, did crisis counseling with the uh, police here, uh, a program through the police. It was this really intensive volunteer program and, um, heard all sorts of people's stories right in the thick of it, and then moved into um, supervising visitations between children and their parents. And that in itself was a very eye opening experience made me think about, you know, the different dynamics that exist within a family and um, what what were some of the things that got to this point where, you know, an intervention was needed more in um, the thick of it. And I guess it was through these experiences, that I started thinking a little bit more about prevention and, and the power that exists within that. And so I was moving to Australia, I was meant to only come for six months. Uh, it's, you know, the the classic story of staying for six months or going for six months, staying for I guess it was close to 10 in the end, 10 years. I,
0: I, I love it how you say like these idioms um, that are Australian, but with a Canadian accent, it's, it's just like, it throws me, you know, it's classic. That's such an Australian expression. So funny.
1: <laughs> it's at the point I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. I don't know if it's an Aussie thing, a Canadian thing, or just a weird me thing. I, I so, love it. Uh, Somewhere
0: in the middle, whatever it is, it's terrific. I hope it continues.
1: Thank you. Feel free to point them out. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I ended up, um, I guess I came for a year, lived in Adelaide, lived, moved to Sydney for six months, um, came back here when my visa ended, and thought I need to get back to Australia. So I remember coming across Batir uh, online, and our founder said must have done an amazing job with the marketing because I thought it was this massive organization and they had a <laughs> lot of people, and at that time it was just them.
0: <laughs> you were the number three employee.
1: That's right. I ended up being the third employee. I was turned down though in my first after my first job interview. How, how, I, how dare
0: they? They have no one else. How, how dare they? What were they thinking?
1: Thank you. I will be sending this to Seb right after yeah, this. Yeah, you let Seb um, know
0: that I'm onto him. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. So I, I remember I had my first job interview. I was sitting in the basement of my parents' house trying to find a spot on their wall where. The camera wouldn't pick up all of our, you know, my brothers and I baby photos and family photos on walls and uh, trying to look professional. But the interview was at three in the morning um, and I didn't want to tell him that he kind of stuffed up the time change. So I was there sitting with a blazer on the top and I remember I had on, I don't i don't know why I'm telling this to you on the podcast, but <laughs> it's I just had, me,
0: no one else,
1: <laughs> no one else. I had these, um, Christmas PJ, uh, pant bottoms on that he couldn't see because it was three in the morning and I just rolled out of bed and I remember having plastered to my computer post-its with Australian mental health statistics so that I was really prepared and said, didn't ask me anything about <laughs>
0: That. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) I don't know what he was looking for, but so what did he
0: What what did he ask you? Was he like, "What's your favorite food?" (laughs)
1: What's your favorite color? Yeah. Why do Canadians say "oot" in a um We don't. We don't, by the way, Um, but (laughs) but I didn't get the job. And um, I decided, though, I was moving to Australia anyway. And when I when I moved over, I got back in touch and said, you know, I don't know if you remember me. I am that Canadian. I didn't even have a visa at the time (laughs) to work for you. I do now. Do you have anything available? And he took me on as Batir's first office manager. Now, you know, with a background in criminology, I had never actually even worked anywhere with an office manager before, and I didn't even know what an office. manager did.
0: <laughs> oh my God. Your story is like an office episode. It's amazing.
1: Oh yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was really interesting. But I, I guess I just had the mentality of, you know what? I'm going to work my tail off and just figure out how to do this. And I think that was, you know, that carried through the first few years of Beteer for all of us. I mean, you know, we were a startup. Um when I joined there were three of us and we all just did anything you need to do to make an organization run. I remember Seb as the CEO. Um, he was just doing things that CEOs don't do. not do. But when you're starting something up, you have to. And it was yep. Kayla Hicks, who was our first school program manager, and then myself. And so I remember I was learning the basics, basics of accounting to do our payroll, and jumped into the back end of our website and picked up some of the coding to try to kind of you know amend <laughs> the website as we went. But in all honesty, there were probably some of the most cherished memories I have in in my career.
0: That's so cool. And so, why did you seek out Batir specifically?
1: I think for me, what I loved about Batir was that. It really, really just came down to human beings connecting on just a very basic level. And through that human connection, that's when you would start to see these really, really powerful shifts in how people were talking about mental health. And I guess if you know Seb, he is somebody who just... I don't know, he, I don't know how to put this, but he just strips away all the bullshit and he basically just comes down to what matters. And I think to him, it is that human connection. And um, that, that has always been so important to me. When I think about the conversations I have with my friends or my family, it's those little conversations that, you know, help people open up, help people feel not so alone. And I think that is essentially what Batir is, is all about
0: and it seems like there's been enormous growth as well so you're number 3 and now there's over 60 employees
1: that's right over 60 employees and uh, and it's wild i sometimes have these moments where i just um look at everybody's faces online and just think how did this happen how 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 are we at the stage where we have this many people but i think the the most exciting thing about it to me is you know seeing this group of people who care so much about this thing that Uh, you know, we all care, we cared so much about from the start. And um, we have over 60 staff, we have uh, about 180 um, young people who are paid to to share their lived experience stories around the country, about 30 casual staff. So um, an incredible board and different committees. So it's an amazing team that we have.
0: And so what, how would you describe Batir's vision and purpose or mission?
1: So essentially, we want all young people in Australia um, having positive conversations on mental health and essentially more equipped to reach out for support if it's something that that they might need. Um, For us, it's really important that you know, we, we often are hearing in the media uh, or just in conversations on mental health, really sad, really um, challenging stories. There is often a lot of negativity that infiltrates this topic. And so we really want to make sure that we are shining a light on the hope, on the resilience, on positivity that exists and that we're, um, I guess, yeah, leaning into that to um, to create change. But we do all of this through really high impact, fun, positive, engaging programs, and through the sharing of real stories from people to other young people to really make sure that some of these messages hit home.
0: And so how do you track the impact that you're having at Batir, And what does success also look like for the organization? Because going from three to 60 and working in such an important, fast growing area, being an impactful mental health organization, what, what does that kind of look like for you on the horizon?
1: It's funny looking back to the start when, you know, when you're just a little baby organization, you're thinking about impact measurement. It just feels like such a big, daunting, scary thing. But it was really important to us in the early days that right away we were collecting uh, information from young people when we had any sort of interaction. So, right from the start, um, our team did such an amazing job at making sure that after every program we ran, we were uh, getting, we were giving out, you know, very simple feedback forms to, to students. So we would collect information um, about how engaged they felt, how much more likely they would, you know, feel to, to reach out for support after that program. Um, And then, but the magic was in the comments, you know, giving young people the opportunity to actually write about how they felt after that program, what they were going to do for themselves after that program. And that's where we were collecting such rich information about people's experiences where they just felt so different about mental health. And were able to articulate that in words that they may not have had before that program. And so we have reached just uh, about close to 300,000 young people with programs. And so we have a lot of information from young people. But over time, it was important to us that, you know, although we had these kind of basic um, benchmarks we could look to to help us track internally the quality of our program. So for example, if we were seeing big fluctuations in what young people, how they were rating our programs, we could kind of look into it and understand, all right, what what happened there? What do we need to revisit and change? But as we started to grow, we realized, okay, we can't just lean on that. We also want to have more sophistication around the way we're measuring our impact. And so uh, we were fortunate to partner up with Macquarie University and Professor Jenny Hudson and a few years ago and um, do a randomized controlled trial on the programs. And um, that was incredible to see reductions in stigma and um, improvements and attitudes towards help seeking from professionals. And that was sustained three months after the intervention, which was incredible. But I think a really interesting one for us has been, how do we understand the impact of storytelling on the person who's sharing their story mm. and people listening? Because storytelling, yeah. And you know, storytelling is the crux of everything that we do at Batir. We train young people to learn how to share their stories in a very safe and effective way so that they're more equipped to um, share their experiences, whether it's with friends or family or with um, community members or at our programs. And so um, last year, um, Genesis uh, Lidstrom, Tom Riley, who's at Batir. um looked at um the impact of that of that program. It's called Being Heard on the people who are sharing their stories and um, published a journal article that looked at things like uh, seeing improvements in self-stigma. And self-stigma is very, very difficult to reduce. Um, we saw these incredible outcomes when it came to even just um, improved well-being um, after young people learned how to kind of reconceptualize their story for good. Um, And now we're looking to partner up um, uh, with other researchers to do quite a, I guess, a larger scale study on that program in more detail. And we really hope that the findings from something like this won't just benefit Batir, but will be useful for the entire sector as well.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of interesting moving parts to what you said. I I think one part is what is the effect on the person of the sharing but then what is the impact of you being the repository of all this insights and information about what young people are thinking as they you know navigate these crises
1: yeah it's it's an interesting one and i think that a challenge when it comes to understanding impact when you're running preventative interventions is that it's very very difficult um it's very difficult to understand impact, to measure outcomes when it comes to um, success in this way. If you think about the core of prevention, you know, you want to prevent people from experiencing mental ill health or, or crisis in their lifetime, that's a very difficult thing to actually track over somebody's
0: lifetime. It is. And we, we are terrible at it so much so that we defunded our national agency that was established to do that many years ago. Um, and I think now our system is completely catered towards, oh, you've had a mental breakdown. Now is probably the right time to help you. <laughs>
1: yeah it's it's very um, it's difficult and one of the biggest things we're hearing is you know I think we're in a very fortunate position where we have invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of skills within um, our amazing team to develop a brand that we hope young people trust and through that you know by reaching, over you know, close to 300,000 young people. We've trained 1,000 uh, young people to learn how to share their stories through this comprehensive um, speaker training program that we've developed. But I guess through having these conversations with so many young people, we're fortunate to have access to A lot of information Um, through that trust we've created with young people. People are opening up to Batir and to the staff that we have on the ground, delivering programs in schools, delivering programs in universities and communities, and you know, rugby halls and regional New South Wales. And I think through that trust, we've been able to learn a lot. But um, the important thing now is what do we do with this information? And we're hearing right now a lot of young people talk about increases, um, increased demand on services. And if unfortunately um, it's taking months and months and months to actually speak to a professional, you know, what's happening during that period of time Mm -hmm. where somebody isn't reaching out for support. And I guess it gets me thinking about, okay, well, what do we need to do as a country to make sure that people aren't in a position where they have to be Uh, Waiting till they're at that crisis point to actually be accessing help? What do we do before that? Mm.
0: I think it's a hard time because everyone's looking for technological solutions to what is a very human problem. And, um, you know, part of all of this is we're in a pandemic. Um, social isolation has never been greater and everyone is feeling it to a a certain degree. Um, And it sort of takes people around you to pick up on the cues of you maybe not being well, which makes it much harder to detect when people are sort of dropping off the perch a bit. (laughs)
1: <laughs> absolutely and you bring up a good point i mean oftentimes it's our friends it's our family it's it's teachers um it's our neighbor it's you know our coaches it's um, church leaders it's it's people within our communities that we see every day or every week who are you know our colleagues who are often the ones who might be able to see hmm you know mike hasn't really been um jumping online to our zoom meetings um on time recently when he used to be really punctual. Or, never, this never uh,
0: happened. I'm very punctual. Just have you know for the record.
1: <laughs> he didn't rock up to my podcast yesterday. <laughs> uh, he did rock. He was on time After uh, this, I must say. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it's often just, it's community members, it's people within our social circles who, who have access to us, who notice these signs. So if we know that it's often people within our own circles, who are gatekeepers, who are people we trust and open up to, you know, what, what do we need to do to make sure these people are equipped with the skills with the confidence to be able to identify you know what are some of the signs that something might be up or how do i even have the conversation but also how do i how do i remember that i'm not a mental health professional and there are boundaries here and while looking after somebody i need to be thinking about myself too there's there's a lot there but there is a huge opportunity for us to look at our communities and the people who make up those communities
0: i think the human connection is such an important vector in well-being overall in this sort of state that we find ourselves in the pandemic, in the, the social isolation, what are the things that we can do to ensure that we maintain human connection with other people?
1: Mm. It, it's such a hard one. I mean, you know, when it comes to the physical distancing and especially the ins and outs of it, especially for Australia, you know, jumping in and out of lockdown and everything, I think it, Looking at the individual things that work for a person is important. Um, as you already mentioned, technology—it has, of course, there are challenges with it, and a lot of us are getting very tired of of computers just kind of sitting here, there, sitting on our phones. But also, it does have its positives. Oh yeah, and it can. Yeah, it really can enable connection. I know for myself, uh, last year during the first lockdown in Australia. I relied on technology to be able to see, um, you know, talk to my family, talk to my friends, see their faces for for a little bit. And even though it was still sitting on the screen, it provided me with a very different type of connection outside of a work-related meeting. And um, but I think as well, you know, looking at how we can place as much as we can a bit of routine within our day, a bit of structure, whether it's, you know, thinking about when we want to start our day, uh, whether it's being able to um, have, you know, one particular thing that we might want to commit to each day that just kind of fills us up a little bit, whether it's a little walk or, a, um, I don't know, even just watching a Netflix episode, whatever it is. Um, sometimes we might need a bit of time to ourselves, but, um, yeah, it, it is, it is, it is tough, but I kind of think as well, you know, often we're hearing people Say, oh, in lockdown, I use all my time to write a book, or I did all of these incredible things. Damn, I
0: hate those people.
1: God.
0: People <laughs> who are too productive during lockdown kills me.
1: But <laughs> at the same time, I mean, good is great. You write that book. Um, <laughs> but um, I think there's you know, that's incredible, but I also think that it's it, we just need to get through it, and so you know, taking off some of that pressure to achieve all of these things or connect with all of these people or, um, you know, do all of the things that we can do to fill that time. It's it's not overly helpful.
0: I think we're going to start to get to the point where we just really relax Zoom rules. Like we already know that no one wears the appropriate pants for Zoom at at all times. But, you know, I mean, we had a conversation in a client workshop the other day just to say, look, it's okay if you want to eat food now. So people were just eating apples. There were was, was sandwiches going down. There was noodles. And, and I think once, you, once you're at food stage and there's kids in the background and there's dogs everywhere, there's basically no more rules of Zoom. It's just all free for all.
1: Yeah. And at at the end of the day, I love that. We are all, we're all people and Mm. everybody is in such a different situation working from home. Some people have ideal um, places where they can be working. Um, Not everybody has a safe space. They can work at at home either. And I think that's important to keep in mind. But then at the end of the day, I mean, we need to do what we need to do to just feel comfortable. And I think I just heard your dog barking there too. So Yeah.
0: He's being very loud and disruptive tonight. (laughs) It's uncommon.
1: He he loves the topic. He's very passionate about prevention too. Oh,
0: Cyril loves the Humans of Purpose podcast generally. He's always around when we, we've got shows. <laughs> um, so so just going back to something you said before about the power of storytelling for people living with mental health uh, issues, did you find that there is a therapeutic sort of positive effect of people doing that? Is, is is it like a treat? Could it be a treatment for some people in a way or a partial treatment?
1: Yeah. So it's such an interesting topic. And basically what we've found over the years is that this, you know, when you're bringing together a small group of young people into a room who don't know each other at all, and the aim is to open up and share the most personal things the person could possibly talk about. It sounds really daunting, but what we have seen time and time again is this incredible shift that happens as people start to get to know each other and as people start to reflect on their experiences and share it in an open way. I think the ingredients have to be right. Um, there, It needs to be done in a very safe, structured environment. A lot goes into creating that environment and the team that we have at the TR specialists within this. Every single... Um, Element of that program has been deliberately put there for a reason to create that safety and to create that positive experience for um, people. But when you get those ingredients right, um, it's amazing. And we, you know, on the first day of this of this workshop, we often have people um, really, really nervous, um, emotional at times, that um, hesitant to open up. And by the time people have finished sharing their experiences, you just see this visible weight lifted off of people's shoulders. And then when it comes to sharing their story again, there's this shift in confidence and we've been measuring um, how people feel, uh, how confident people feel, how valid people feel their stories are before and after this program. And um, there's a massive jump. And so, you know, There is enough there to give us reason to believe that there are therapeutic values. However, we, you know, we have not studied that yet. Um, But um, when you hear people talk about how, because they shared their story at this workshop, they felt more empowered to uh, talk to their mom for the very first time in their entire life about their experience. And now they're seeing an entire shift in their family home. When it comes to how mental health is is spoken about, or um, somebody heard somebody else at this program share their real story, and then they were able to um, go to the GP for the first time and get a mental health care plan and start reaching out for support. There are real shifts that are happening, which is just incredible.
0: it's really interesting you know one of the things i think is important in this space is to elevate and give enablers to people um who are suffering from mental health issues to have a voice and do the storytelling and when i think about it from my own perspective um podcasting has been a really superb way to do that how else are we doing that and how what's Batir doing to sort of lead the way in um engaging people to tell their story
1: yeah, podcasting is such a good example of storytelling. And I think often when I'm listening to podcasts, which is often on, on walks, or just sitting on public transportation, it's when people start talking about their personal kind of experiences where you can envision it in your head. And um, there was essentially a study done uh, in the States, I am going to Totally butcher this. Um, all the academics are probably cringing listening to me talk about this right now. <laughs> we don't have but...
0: academic listeners, don't worry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, perfect. This is my kind of podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a study done uh, by, I think it was Professor Yuri Hassan, and uh, he kind of looked at the, um, the power of. Uh, storytelling on our brains. And essentially when you can invoke empathy in other people through a story, parts of your brain actually light light up. Mm. And they light up in the same places for the person sharing their emotive experience and the person listening. So your brain essentially couples. And I just think, you know, how incredible would that be if you were walking down the street and you were just talking to somebody. um, You and old mate are having a conversation and you're you're kind of sharing your own experience. (laughs) Sorry.
0: You're just. I said
1: that. I said that for, said that for you. There. So good. I usually don't say old mate. Old
0: mate. My
1: parents are going to listen to this and be like, "Did we raise this person?" <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Um. But yeah, you know, imagine kind of sharing this ex- your personal experience with somebody else, and if we could see into into their brains, and we could actually see the impact of these brains lighting up in the same places, mm. it's just incredible but um, that doesn't answer your question at all. So what what we're doing at Fatir when it comes to storytelling is um, we're kind of looking at how do we give more young people the opportunity to share their real experiences. We know that people want the opportunity to be able to, um, to learn how to share, to help other people. And so we're looking a little bit more at based on what we're learning from young people's experiences, not just around the challenges they've experienced, but what actually helped, how do we ensure that we are feeding this information or we're creating pathways to share this information with the decision makers out there. You know, if we have um, people making decisions for young people around what services look like or around where funding is going to, it makes sense that um, they have the power of this information that they can directly hear from young people. And so We uh, were really fortunate to gain support from the government to develop, um, to look at how we can scale this and create more opportunities for sharing stories. And so uh, over the last 18 months, we've created an app. Uh, We've been working with young people and with experts around the sector that is all about storytelling. So people can jump on this app and go through prompts to learn how to share their own experience in a really safe, positive way. But then you can also jump on and access many stories from other young people um, so that it, it can really help people feel okay, I'm not alone. you know um, mm-hmm. other people have experienced similar things, but also they are talking about how they were able to get through this and it creates a lot of hope. But what we're really excited about this app is, is that it's being built in a way to be a very powerful tool to collect data and um, enable us to um, draw out you know rich insights so that we can make sure that, in, um as quickly as possible, we can communicate as much information as possible to decision makers because young people want to be a part of these conversations and about changing the systems around them. And we hope this will be a powerful tool in, in enabling that.
0: And possibly a platform. I think sometimes mental health and conversations are all about containing the right container. And um, you know, certainly through the Humans of Purpose podcast, the mental wealth series I did previously for Cooper Investors, and also just my own um, mental health journey, um, I found as I've opened up more about my journey and my experiences, I've attracted guests that are also happy to talk about their experiences very vulnerably. And um, it's just a beautiful thing to have people come on a show like this and just tell you what their struggles were, how they got through them. Um, there's a there's a level of vulnerability and openness there that's just really stunning to see, you know, in that form.
1: Absolutely, I mean. I think in the past, vulnerability was seen as such a weakness. And mm-hmm. it still is to a certain extent within, mm-hmm. you know, certain industries or certain um certain groups of people. But I think we are starting to see more and more that by being vulnerable, it breeds vulnerability. You know, when you see somebody open up, you think about a friend or family member who's done that to you, and you start to realize, wait a tick, I, I'm not alone in this. I can actually see myself in some of these experiences. It humanizes people and it makes it so much more easier. For you to put your own walls down and and be open, and I think that is the basis of batir.
0: Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Really well said, actually, as well. Um, so. What's it been like for you? I mean, if you're in an interesting situation being sort of so far away, but you're working in a team, um, How is how has it affected your kind of well-being and mental health being sort of sometimes on the same time zone as Australia, sometimes in your own time zone? I imagine it wreaks havoc with your habits, behaviours, sleep and whatnot.
1: Yes. How long do you have? Um, (laughs) No, it's it's been a really, it's been an interesting time for sure. I mean, on one hand, I feel very, very fortunate to um, be in a position where we can really leverage technology to, you know, Work wherever and to have these exciting roles in different places. Um, I I'm, I don't know if it's worth saying that um, I am no longer the office manager. I've been I've been up here for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do I've, that in the introduction, but you can say clarify now what you do. I I wasn't
1: I wasn't that great at that, um, and so <laughs> so I, they had I, to
0: promote you to uh, global <laughs> social impact. <laughs>
1: Director. yes exactly yeah. it made sense yeah. as the next next spot open it's a very um, like
0: obvious next move
1: I... <laughs> Yes, absolutely <laughs> transferable skills um so now now my i guess i've done a few different roles over the over my time at, at, as the organization has grown but currently um, my role is uh global, head of global impact. And so really looking at um, the research side of things, advocacy, but also collaborations. um, It's really important to us that we can look at how we drive best practice in some of these areas, but how we can come together with others to um, strengthen knowledge sharing and do more collaborative research. And that is an exciting thing to be able to do when you zoom out and you think about who are the minds around the world that we can connect with? And, you know, you can be anywhere to do that. But I guess for me, we have such a vibrant, incredible team as an organization and going from working, you know, with many of them day to day and just seeing the, I don't know, just that the personalities and the support that everybody offers, and then kind of going from Working on your own, which I know most people around the world are doing right now, it, it's been tough. It's tough to have a bit of a routine, and I said earlier one of the things that helps some people through lockdowns is having routine structure. structure. And I think I it's probably time I practice what I preach a little bit because it does you know get a bit tough with motivation and productivity, and um, it, it, you know I'm a human being at the end of the day, and it, it's hard to sometimes feel uh, great when you're all over the place and you don't have a lot of that human connection that we've been talking about in this uh, podcast today. So um, maybe this can be a really good next step for me as a reminder to think about what I need to do. If I'm, you know,
0: Well, I I never, I never intended to be your life coach today, but I'm glad that we've both made some positive. (gasps) Wrap uh, it up there. (laughs) (laughs) We made some positive next steps and uh, changes. (laughs) (laughs) um so let's just talk before you finish up i'm just keen to hear a bit about your partnerships approach because you've worked you're able to collaborate with some amazing organizations research impact other um large uh, not-for-profits in the same space and i think also probably having an rct would be a huge um feather in the cap um to attract a lot of partners to work with you how has that been going for you what what kind of approach do you take in the in the partnership space
1: I think that we're fortunate because we've been very clear from day one uh, what our point of difference is. We want to make sure that we aren't duplicating all of the great work that's already happening in the sector and that we're really thinking about the role we can play in filling gaps. And I think because we've been very clear on that when it comes to young people, when it comes to prevention, when it comes to storytelling, um, you know, we, we aren't running a um, clinical intervention and because we know that, I think it makes it a lot easier for other partners to work with us because they know the role that we can play, which um, which does fill some gaps. And so when it comes to research, when it comes to even sometimes, um, you know, funding partners, it, it's really great being able to um be very open about the work that we're doing, the 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 information that we're hearing from young people and the impact that we are having, but also to be really vulnerable in the challenges that we're having in, in capturing um, capturing some of this information. But the potential that we see is out there if we have the right support and the right partnerships. For us, partnering up with other people, it makes a lot of sense. Um, If you can pull your skills together and your expertise together, you're only going to get stronger and farther with what you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, partnerships do take resource to do well. And so I think for us, it's really important that we're quite deliberate and strategic with the partnerships that we do um, create, uh, whether it's with research or whatever it might be. in the education sector with with our funders. And uh, we really value relationships that allow us to be innovative and try new things as well. That can be very difficult to do when everything of course needs to be evidence-based. It can be very hard to try something new and to give it the space to actually explore what the capabilities and potential can be. And so I think partnerships that enable um, iteration that enable you to make mistakes but learn from them so that you can come out even stronger those are the
0: really powerful ones. Yes. A friend of mine who was over for dinner before the lockdown said, it's sometimes important to escape the cage of evidence, which I quite liked. <laughs> and, um, you know, just getting at that before things become science, they're pre-science and that's where the innovation and play happens. And it's so important, that space. Absolutely. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, it'd be great to have people um, connect um, definitely through LinkedIn um, or um, on our website, a u. You can jump on there, find out more and and get in touch directly through there. Who
0: has batir.com and how dare they? (laughs)
1: How dare they? And just very quickly as well, everybody often thinks, what does that word even mean? Supposedly, back in the day, there was an elephant in Kazakhstan, who could speak several phrases in Russian, and the elephant was called the tears. So we're all about giving a voice to the elephant in the room. Boom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy you went there. My wife said to me before the podcast, make sure you find out what Padir means. And I was like, oh, there's no way that's going to come up. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Perfect way to end. <laughs> Perfect
1: way to end.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't ask you earlier. You probably were expecting that, like, you know, first couple of sentences.
1: <laughs> oh, it stuffed up my whole rhythm.
0: Like... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hang on a sec. Um, we'll hang up and we'll debrief. Uh, thank you so much for being with me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.